five, four, three, two, one, and we are live. Colin Lewis, thanks for calling in this evening. How are you? Thanks for letting me and having me on the show, I should say. <laughs> no, it's great to have you on. It's uh, been interesting following some of your content there the last couple of weeks. So how's everything your side and everything back in Dublin? Um, well, uh, I live in Dublin, but I work internationally. And uh, I think we all know where it's at, whether you're in Dublin, London, Shanghai or Tel Aviv. It's, uh, we're all suffering from exactly the same thing. I'm pretty lucky myself. Uh, I live in uh, a decent sized house, as in it's got a back garden. And we're not too far from a park. Um, a lot of our, a uh, lot of our friends with four and five kids running around the house and in smaller locations. I don't think quite as lucky. So we're blessed at the moment. It's not too bad. Industry-wise, very tricky travel business. It's going to take a long time for a travel business to recover. I think we all know. Colin, just for listeners that might not be aware of some of your work, if you just give us a, a brief background of uh, your role at Open Jaw and your articles at Marketing Week, if we could just get a bit of a brief background about yourself and we'll kick into some more content. Yeah, I'm the, my name is Colin Lewis. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Openjaw Technologies, who are a uh, travel technology company who sell e-commerce, big data, and conversational interface technology to airlines and travel brands around the world, likes of British Airways, Four Seasons, Avis, Hainan Airlines, Cathay Pacific, and so on. A, a company's grown substantially in the last four or five years. It's out of Openjaw. Uh, prior to Openjaw, I was working in airlines like BMI, Stobarter, a European Marketing Director for 118. I'm a columnist for Marketing Week for the last four or five years under my own name. And I started and so I started the DMX Dublin with Marketing Institute in 2013. I program it now uh, for the last eight years. Uh, what else do I do? I do I invest in e-commerce startups and I do a lot of tweeting and article stuff to try and because one of my passions is teaching and I do maybe about 100 hours of contact hours of teaching a year. Jeez, you're a man of many hats in the marketing industry. Um, well, the thing is, it's, 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 it's I should have known better because my uh, my sister's a teacher, and the thing that I really like is teaching. So it's kind of like I should have copped on years ago that uh, teaching and communicating in terms of marketing and and stuff, you know, it's, it's fun for them and fun for you. It's it's the sort of thing I would do if I didn't get paid for it. And in fact, in many cases, I don't get paid for it. Yeah, and. Um Curriculum in marketing, because I done my master's in Belfast in Jordanstown. I done my MSc in marketing, and I'd say over the years the <laughs> curriculum has probably changed a lot. Um, I did an undergraduate uh, master's and then an MBA, and what was interesting was the curriculum hasn't changed at a certain level, and should have changed. And then stuff they should have changed, uh, they've kind of gone too far as well. So it, it, there's a lot of discussion on the marketing right now that the fundamentals are being taught as well as they should be. And there's too much focus on channels and thinking through how to, to maximize and optimize channels. I sit on the fence because the younger person coming through has to get a job and what people buy when they're being interviewed, uh, when they're looking for jobs, what people are buying is skills. They're not buying some strategic mind. They're buying skills. So to get a job, you need the skills. You need the tools. You need to focus on the kind of what's good in channels. You need to be an AdWords expert or an SEO expert or whatever it may be um, rather than some, some strategy guru. 
Mm, for sure. Right, Colin, we'll kick in to the show. Obviously, this show, I um, kind of wanted to focus on what marketing spend will be like post-COVID-19. So just from the off, what are your thoughts on how brands could differ their marketing spending after all this uh, chaos? We have to create the context. Right now, Is there's not just a demand problem. But there's also a supply problem. So in, normally during uh, any form of recession, there's a, more of a demand problem, but there's no issues around, um, uh, around supply. Now there's a supply and demand problem. So it's a very unique situation for people to face. As we move out of the rece- uh, move out of COVID, what we're going to find is there will continue to be a demand problem due to mass unemployment. And supply will actually be patchy rather than consistent. Let me give you an example. Um, We know, for instance, that in many cases, um, a lot of hotels and bars have been hit. They're obviously big employers, but the products and the services that supply them, food services businesses, they've had to either A, close down or throw their food out because there were just no demand for them right now. So rebooting that's going to be very, very difficult. If you just take something that I know quite well, the film business, um, most of the film and TV shows, whether it's Netflix, whether it's BBC or it's NBC, those shows would be filming over the summer for next year. And in fact, there won't be actually any shows filmed this year, which means there'll be a dearth of product this time next year and for 2022. So there's all these kind of roll-on second-order effects that we don't realize that are there. So therefore, from a brand perspective, it'll depend on the industry. Do you have the product? And do you have the product at the right price point? Because the consumer um, is going to have a, a rethink because of the shock to their wallet. And let's face it, there is a certain segment of the community who this will have no impact on them, but the majority of the middle class will have had a massive impact on their wallet. And uh, so it, the, the, that's the frame for brands in 2021 and 22. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting point. I, I didn't even think about that um, film example you said. And do you think because there will be an oversupply of um, film content that it could help networks networks drive up their prices? Uh, uh, well, you see, we we got to split out two things. One is the, uh, the, the whole supply and demand piece there. So uh, the other side is uh, is the, the decision of the sort of the, the insight and, and the belief, I should really say, about whether this represents a, 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 a shift in purchasing behavior and a shift in viewership behavior. So let me tease that out a little bit more. Does the fact that people are now forced to buy online, is that a permanent shift or a once-off and it'll go back to inverted commas normal? Okay, so for instance, I know Mark Ritson believes that nothing's really going to change. Things are going to go back to normal pretty quickly. Um, I'm not as convinced of that. I, I'm really not. The more lockdown continues, the more the impact on the national psyche. And and then and there's one real, really interesting point that I kind of want to tease out that I heard discussed and now I've been thinking about a bit more. I'm going to write my next column on this. In the past, one would have been able to make uh, decisions around consumer, consumer segments that are reasonably reasonably uh, broad brush but reasonably true um for instance if you've ever used done a big segmentation study in the uk or ireland you use tgi and you use mosaic or you use acorn okay and you can make some broad brush you know still fairly fine-grained analysis of segments okay and and many of those ones are quite true however 
the big differences now is that we're all going to have a lot more really more unique experiences, although we're nominally in the same segment. So the experience of people my age with four kids running around the house, the nervousness associated with whether they can get to their GSEs, GCSEs, A-levels, leaving cert, whatever it may be, um, and what's going to happen to them over the summer with two people working at home. It's totally different to my personal experience when it's just myself and my wife, and we're getting along fine, and everything's A-okay. And it's actually quite quite, a, quite okay for us. And then if you just translate that experience to every household is essentially having a totally different experience at any one time. Whereas it's, it's it, you could argue broad brush that people would be having similar experiences. We'd be going to the pub on a Friday night. We'd be going out to dinner on a Saturday night. We'd be watching Netflix on Sunday evening. Now it's like just thrown up in the air and we don't know where it's going to land. And so this concept of everybody having much more unique experiences will that create further fragmentation will this t in the road v in the road force people to be uh, force will ensure that e-commerce continues on its upward trajectory as in a, a 45 degree angle upwards or a 90 degree angle upwards and then finally in terms of media consumption is this finally the death of newspapers uh, and a change in viewership habits for appointment to view tv forever yeah, it's an interesting point. And just staying on the subject of mainstream media, I think personally it's quite a, a worrying time for traditional TV with on-demand increasing on enormous rates. And that I think brands are really going to have to readjust the content they're producing for these platforms. What do you think? The Over the last number of years, maybe five years, there's been, been two, there's been the yin and yang going on in the marketing world. There's been those saying TV is dead, and then there's been those saying TV is still very alive. You see guys like Jerry Dakin, um, Mark Ritson, obviously, just talking, you know, showing and obviously using proper data from Thinkbox, showing how television is still alive and kicking. The real question is now, um, is, 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 is this uh, linear TV, if you will, is it now starting to actually go downhill, particularly amongst a certain youth cohort? And I, I kind of think I'm leaning towards, and I know I'm sounding a little more subjective, but the dearth of programming, which I touched on a few weeks, uh, a few minutes ago, um, and the the essentially the fact that the people physically aren't in their offices, they can't actually come up with great ideas. They're not in front of each other. It's really, really difficult to see how television can continue on a quality in terms of content trajectory over the next while. It's, it's just, I don't, I don't know how you're going to do it because there's not going to be new TV series. Creativity is not going to be there um, because people aren't in the same office. And most fundamentally, TV and film depend on outsourced creative <clears throat> you know, production companies. 90% of all TV and film creative production people are unemployed in the UK right now. Did you say that figure again? Ninety percent. Ninety percent. Yeah. Oof, that's a that's a scary figure. And just Colin with RTE, who we know that have been struggling quite a bit. What do you think the future is going to look like for them? A smaller version of what it currently is. Um, it's 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 a similar problem that the, the BBC will have. Albeit obviously the BBC um, has a, has a different kind of funding structure. But both ITV, anybody takes advertising. Um, advertising is down whether it's print or TV, it's even difficult to get new creative out the door. Not that, that that's a huge thing anymore, uh, but I think the longer term for RTE 
you'd have to question it uh, because the the competition for our eyeballs um, between Disney Plus, Netflix, Sky, and so on is is very very challenging. And obviously, Sky are now coming the worst off with this right now. It's a very very uh, 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 what, what, you know. Let's let's look at the basics as I touched on. What do all of these things, whether the the, the subscription channels or the appointment to view channels, um, uh, terrestrial channels, what do they rely on? Quality content, quality new creative. Uh, years ago, uh, Robert, Robert uh, what's his name? Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch, um, described sport as the battering rams for subscription television. Well, there's no battering ram. Whether it's a creative proposition, such as TV, or sports, the battering ram is finished. And can we go a bit more detail? How do you mean by the battering ram, Colin, if you just wouldn't mind explaining that for me? So Murdoch, what Murdoch meant with that was that if you bought out, which you did obviously through the premiership area, buy the rights to the net, all the big games and all the big names, such as Manchester United and so on, if you bought out those rights, essentially you had a moat built around your business and you, uh, the customers had to batter their way through the door to go and actually see this material see this content and um so basically you know using this battering battering ram analogy he just basically says it blew the doors off everything and you needed so what you did is you went you went around the world buying all the properties so he bought formula one uh recently two years ago all the rights to that he bought back in the day the rugby league in australia he bought the rugby in australia um obviously premier league and, and so on. And guess what? When it's not on, your subscription gets questioned. For sure. For sure. And just with the TV advertising itself, um, Colin, do you think uh, it was in big trouble before this COVID-19 even occurred? I think uh, December 2019 marked its worst ever year in ad spend in a decade. Um, there's different statistics going around, but... Um, they all kind of be similar, similar statistics. But do you think it is mainly just because of the metric side of it that they, it's very, very difficult? Apart from a spike in sales for certain B two C companies, it's it's not as measurable as other platforms we use. Well, the you could argue that if you will, digital platforms have had a lot of what's the word? A lot of legroom given to them because. In theory, everything was totally measured. All the KPIs, all the steps of the funnel were measured. But then you actually have to talk about the elephant in the room, which is a lot of these data, uh, a lot of these purported eyeballs that saw your digital display ads were faked. And as we know, programmatic advertising is really under pressure in terms of um, ad fraud. Okay, so you know, digital is subject to ad fraud, which means can you really rely on those numbers there as well? Um, on the pure television side, um, tons of data from Bennett and Field, tons of data from Thinkbox, which shows that in terms of reach, in terms of penetration into the consumer's mind, TV still delivers. The question is post-COVID-19 whether it will still deliver because it does deliver the reach. And actually, if you understand Byron Sharp stuff as well, and the frequency thing, the frequency discussion that I used to have interminably when I was in 118, 118, it turns out that the frequency is not as much of an issue compared to the fact you get the reach. Now, 
we did a lot of econometric studies back in the day in 2012, 2011, and it kind of proved that. Part of the problem with the proof from the, from the econometric study I had was that I, I find it hard to believe that a one plus or a two plus view could actually have such an impact on uh, top of mind, prompt and unprompt and saliency. And just moving on, Colin, that one year I'd just like to talk about that obviously there's a lot of pressure on UK and Irish businesses to move online. And that kind of outlines really that the product is no longer just a single commodity, that the whole process, the journey, the experience, that is the product, not just a um not just the end product that the customer has in their hand, the whole experience, the whole journey is going to be different. And a lot of smaller businesses mightn't realize that that process is really part of their product. Now, what do you think? Um, well, I was uh, for my sins, I wrote um, the e-commerce best practice guide for e-consultancy last uh, September, October, or August, September, October, a 54,000 word, 164 page behemoth, a behemoth, I should say. And, you know, um, one of the things, and I've been teaching, by the way, e-commerce for almost 10 years. One of the things I say very clearly, you need to separate out the world of products from the world of propositions. Now, if I've worked in FMCG, it all sounds fine and dandy. I go and say, I have my product, and then it's distributed through retail or whatever. Now, I have very specific experience with this because I teach a lot of marketers, and the marketers are um, – they think their lens is what's happened in the retail outlets. And of course, that's true because that's what they're gold of. However, there is this concept that people are finally tuning into, and which I talk about, which is called the digital shelf. Because there's always been two shelves in retail. The first is the one that we see in the retail store where the product is looked at and, and obviously ultimately sure purchased. And the second shelf is what's in a consumer home where you know, what we see in our own shelves at home where we can, like if I can ever find the the, the, the tomato sauce or the beans or whatever the case is, um, that's where look and loyalty and uh, look and advocacy and loyalty is built in. The third shelf, which is the price precise moment or opportunity online where they see your product, where they consider it, where they interact with it. That's the third shelf now. And that shelf is called the digital shelf. Okay? And so the digital shelf for products is totally different when you think about product discovery, product assortment, product visibility, merchandising, and reviews, ratings. They're all a totally different things, which then leads to the concept of proposition. So instead of thinking about product, we think product, digital shelf, and how does that all wrap up in one overall proposition? Now, we're familiar, obviously, in marketing with the concept of unique selling proposition because it's one of the key tenets. But in reality, um, the proposition is not just the product, but it's the content, it's the convenience, the service proposition, the choice, all of these mixed together. And so what's happening is FMCG in particular got confused and they thought the same product could be distributed to the same outlets albeit through the, this new channel of e-commerce. No, it's a different frame. Your your proposition is totally different. And do you think for likes of pennies now and who are totally reliant on high street, and I was just reading an article recently that you know, pennies business model is completely price-driven. And for companies like that who just re- rely on that face-to-face interaction, do you think there is any... Um, any way that they can pursue maybe an e-commerce um, platform in the future? Just from your experience, do you think they can do it? Well, 
I like to step back in this context here and understand and talk through strategy. And uh, Richard Rommel's book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, has a, has a very interesting frame of this because what he goes and says is um, all strategy starts with diagnosis. And I think what was happening here is people's diagnosis of Penny's strategy was incorrect. So Penny's sales go to zero. Uh oh, they should have had an e-commerce strategy, an e-commerce you know program. Or why didn't they do it? Now Penny's actually did do uh, an extensive study on their ability to enter the market profitably, and they they they, they couldn't do it for some pretty straightforward reasons because in-store impulse impulse purchases dramatically increase Penny's basket size and average order value. So there's you and me walking through Penny's. We think what we need is a pair of socks. The pair of socks is three euros or whatever the price is. And then we say, you know, I can buy a pair of boxer shorts. Oh, look at that. Five, uh, T-shirts are two, shirts 10. And instead of going out with the pair of boxer shorts for three quid, I've spent 20. So their way of merchandising meant the AOV went through the roof. And the average order value online for pennies was too low. So the decision was taken purely out of pragmatism. The proper diagnosis was, you know, uh, would the, uh, what, what, if I can't increase the AOV, what I've got is a very, very lot of volume of product being sold or for a very low ticket price with my delivery charge being huge. And you know, the, the, the problem could be that they're actually selling too cheaply. The margin or the delivery is sometimes built into the price. Mm. And like when I read articles about this, just to push for smaller, smaller businesses to go online, but we see a clear example for pennies that it doesn't always work. And as you said there, that pennies is designed in a way that you go in for one thing and you come out with 20 items. Yeah. Now, the small business one is a very, very interesting question because I do a lot of work with small business and I've invested my own cash in small business. And... It's not for the faint-hearted. You need a valid and well-considered reason to build out e-commerce. Um, e-commerce is great for long tail, because then you can build out um, a proposition that really works. Now, long tail meaning, you know, that you and me are interested in buying 18th-century French poetry or uh, uh, lute players' music, lute music from the 17th century or. In my case, because I'm a nutcase, I'm interested in 1980s synthesizers, electronic synthesizers. So these are all long tail things that once they're online, they find their own tribe, if you will. Okay. Now, the problem is a lot of stores don't have that long tail or their proposition is too me too. Their products are too me too. So if I'm based in Manchester and I'm selling something that I can get down the road, my proposition want to be damn good. Now, I know of one very good company like this. So a friend of mine advises a company called MyOutfit.co.uk. The products are expensive uh, fashion for younger men, maybe 23 to 33, kind of, if you will, men about town for the purpose of discussion. And, yeah. Single uh, men. Single men around <laughs> town with 150 euro, 150 pound tops, 200 pound tops. I was opposed to two pound tops like in Penny, okay? And Penny's are pre mark in the UK. And so it's a different mod, mod, model. And what they know their customers can go to Selfridges and buy the same product. However, what they put together as the proposition means they've got the niche because they know their customers are searching online, wants instant gratification, and they offer either same day 
or delivery on Sunday as well. So you can look cool going out on Sunday afternoon or Saturday night, whereas you'll never get that from from Sainsbury's, not from Sainsbury's, from Salvages. So it's a way to think about is what these guys have. But he's built it from the ground up online. If you've already got a business with three or four shops, you understand how to run retail, but you do not understand how to run online because it's a different discipline. It's chalk and cheese. It's like comparing cars and bikes. They both have wheels and they both get you A from A to B, but they're two completely different beasts. And this is where, where whether somebody should go online. It's a real question because you need to know about mix, merchandise, digital shelf propositions, customer acquisition, customer conversion, customer retention, all through abstract digital tools. And not everybody has those skills. So Colin, just from, that was really interesting, just from listening to that, your advice really for smaller business, would I be right in saying that if you have a deep niche offering, uh, that could be suitable grounds for an online website? Well, it's, you know, funnily enough, it's, 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 it is actually an element of back to basics. If you have a product and a proposition that is, has a demonstrable need in the customer, from a customer, that actually you could extend your market by going internationally, that is something well worth looking at. If you have a product that's a me too product that is available everywhere, you want to have a damn good um, price point or proposition point to be able to do so. Now, having said that, I'll, I'll, I'll slightly row back on my harshness in that particular situation. Okay, um, If you look at marketplaces such as Amazon, Amazon has been around for a number of years, but it's barely started. If you take the UK, US, I should say, US is, accounts for 40 plus percent of all e-commerce purchases, like full stop, all e-commerce purchases. And it's over 50% of all product searches start in Amazon. Their second biggest market is the UK. The third biggest market is Germany. So they're pretty sophisticated in the UK, but nowhere near as sophisticated as they are in the US. They're just starting. Okay. So if I'm selling either, you know, 17th century lutes or, you know, uh, whatever, 1980 synthesizers, not only can I do it via .com, my own brand, but I can actually also do it via Amazon and still win, particularly for these niche products. I'm involved in a business where it's doing very well on its own website, but it wouldn't be doing as well for what I call commoditized products on Amazon. But when it has stuff that is a remnant material, when it has stuff that is reduced in price or bought in bulk, they can get it out the door through Amazon and shift it and get good prices. Yeah. It's a very interesting a very interesting angle. And I know a lot of small businesses are probably thinking that way, whether they could go the Amazon route. Um, I, my worry really is that a lot of smaller companies are listening to a lot of mainstream media and some government advice and think they should go online straight away. But if you're just a local hardware store and you want to set up an e-commerce platform, well, that's a big gamble you're going to take. Well, I mean, I'll tell you the steps straight off the top of my head, what you would need to take. You would, first of all, because uh, I created a model to think about this whilst I taught because it was just so uh, so challenging. But regardless of the, the, the channels, so many decisions have to be made, just even just something about like as simple as the pure core technology. Secondly, increasing specialism is, is really the standard at the moment. It's not like Colin or Andrew or Mary or Pat or Joe can get out there and say, I can do everything. They are very rare and very few, and I've met them 
and they are literally a unicorn in disguise walking around in two feet because they're so rare okay instead you end up having to have this multiplicity of skills and that's so hard uh, and then realistically are you is colin going to be an expert on shopify an expert on Magento, and then saying I'm also an expert on merchandising and the digital shelf. You can suddenly see how the headcount starts going through the roof, and you're operating your hardware store in, you know, Birmingham. How's that going to work? It's, that's why it's there's a, there's a lot to think through. And in many cases, a lot of these folks are just saying, you know what, I'll just stick it all on Amazon and go from there, because then I can at least can map to them. Because Amazon has one very interesting thing, which is their customer service standards are so high. That if you, it's, it's, it's a version of if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Um, so it's some respects, it actually can be better to start from Amazon. Yeah, and it just kind of, it really kind of cuts out your efforts in customer service. Just say you're trying to do mostly through your website and trying to deal with customer service and you're creating more and more jobs and you just, right, I'll just pass it off to Amazon and leave them do some of the work for me. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, and and also, you could argue you're where you can focus in your skills on one thing. That's that's not quite true, but the, the principle is, is right. For sure. And Colin, just moving on, a very interesting trend or some interesting news out at the moment is Google ad spend. And we're just talking about Amazon there. I know Amazon have pulled quite a large um, amount of their Google ad spend, which is probably Google's one of their biggest clients and I know in recent podcasts and articles you've done you said Expedia have pulled it from about 5 billion back to 1 billion am I Correct. right on that so what is the future going to look like for Google ad spend because it mightn't this mightn't be temporary for them think of the world to this lens of supply and demand that we talked about earlier in the world of travel there's no supply then there's no demand but when will there be Realistically, 2020 is, as Mark Ritson described it, it's like ping pong strategy. You just work out what's happening day to day. But we can definitely say hand on heart, there will not be, you know, 25 flights a day, London, Dublin, on Aer Lingus um, anymore. That's just not going to happen. Um, people with social distancing are not going to travel. That's just one route amongst millions of different airline routes. So we know that the supply, the demand will be there for travel, therefore the supply will be there. Where is the biggest spend? It's on acquisition, top of funnel. Who's the person who wins on performance marketing that's top of funnel? Google. So you extrapolate out. Who's the biggest advertiser? Well, two advertisers, Booking.com and Expedia.com, were the single biggest travel advertisers on Google last year. They spent $10.4 million, which was an increase of 5% in the previous year. So 2018 was also just below $10 billion. $10 billion. Okay. Uh, That's Expedia two, and Booking.com together, two, is it? Just, just, as the song says, just the two of us. Just those two. Okay? So Barry Diller gets back on top with uh, Expedia and fires chief exec in, in, in December 19, uh, 2019. Comes in, sacks 3,000 staff in January, and basically two weeks ago or a week ago said, uh, you know what, we're not going to be spending $5 million anymore. In fact, we're not even lucky to spend a billion. Now, remember, he, he was talking not just to Google spend, but all spend. Glenn Fogel from Bookie.com uh, said last Monday uh, that they uh, came into a Dutch newspaper that they essentially would spend nothing on marketing this year. And if you understand Bookie.com, you'll understand why they would do that. So therefore, we've gone, if you're Google, you're looking at a 
9 billion, 10 billion shaped, 9 billion shaped hole just from two customers. Add up all the airlines in the world. Okay, there are currently 700 and something reasonably sized airlines carrying upwards of a million passengers. Okay, they've all stopped. Add in all the hotel chains, Accor, IHG, uh, you name it, gone. All the tour operators, 2E the small tour operators, mom and pop shops. So you're not looking at a 10 billion hole for these two guys. You gotta be looking at probably a 50 billion hole. That's before we start talking about Volkswagen um, and all their brands, uh, Peugeot, Renault, uh, General Motors, Chevrolet, add it all up and you're looking at going, wow, Google AdWords could collapse and spend in six months by about 50 to 70 billion. 50 to 70 billion jesus it's a astonishing number and i know a few weeks ago they brought out um a 340 million dollar credit for s- small businesses now that's probably a sign on its own that they're in a bit of trouble and google to be honest uh, as much as we might give out about them and different people have different opinions about them they've done they've given um world health organization i think they've given reduced rates alone on adwords but i was more interested in the 340 million uh credit they were giving out now do you think this is just a goodwill gesture or do you just think it's just a pure indication that they're going to be struggling um well the only thing i say with goodwill gestures for companies is check do they pay their taxes in the first place yeah that's all. I, I have almost nothing to say on this because I, I hate hypocrisy uh, and, um, you know, companies getting greenwashing is bad. Companies getting COVID-19 washing uh, when they didn't pay their taxes. I find it um, tad distasteful. Yeah, no, that, that's true. To be fair, it's going to be a... Uh... An interesting time for Google ahead, and I well, think- all all of them because um, the the will the day of reckoning come that people will say, uh, let me just check, I'm unemployed, uh, I lost my job, you guys don't have pay taxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it's fairly criminal, really, when you think about it. And um, just moving on, Colin, just the last point I was going to. Uh, going to talk about before we finish up today is just the area of content creation uh, i suppose an area that i kind of one of my passions and loves and how do you think brands at the moment can still tell their story through content it's a difficult time for creating it so i'm just out of top of your head what do you think is something brands can be doing um well i don't think they can be anything from three to five months ago that you, you thought was on trend then just will feel off. It's kind of like BC and PC, you know, before Corona, post Corona. And if you're, if, you know, it maybe goes back to the basics of what brands are about, which is you've got to be creating value and adding value to people's lives. And that's the frame of reference. I write a lot about creating value. And when I see, particularly say brands that are essentially pseudo monopolies, such as the electricity firms or the gas firms, talking about stuff when essentially I don't really have that many choices, it drives me bananas because it's just fake, fake brand values, fake brand positioning. However, the consumer goods companies who are in people's lives right now, the healthcare companies who are in people's brands right now, in people's lives right now, they have an opportunity. But their obligation, and this is where I get into the moral subjectivity, to me their obligation is to be uh, 
create value and add value and not extract value because the world was a little more about extracting value. Therefore, that's the lens for the creative from now on, which is, am I creating value for the product? Am I creating value with, with the product? Am I creating value for the consumers? Because the consumer has less cash, less ability to focus, and is very nervous about the future. Uh, however, I will say one thing. There is a interesting dichotomy, as I touched on earlier. If you buy the Financial Times and have a look at some of the luxury brand ads there, it's still business as usual. So I realize I'm not the target market, but there is still markets out there where there's been nothing stopped. It's hard to create content with the idea of business as usual, really, at the moment. Like, uh, is the only way that brands can really, like, market themselves is just helping out in the situation? Because... Like I've I seen some good stuff now. Nike, they came out with a campaign, uh, play for the world. But that's Nike. Like it's just a totally different level. Who can afford to do it? So maybe just for brands, medium-sized yeah. companies. What? I, let me let me let me uh, hop on that one because this this is a really this is a really good point. Thank you for saying that. Um, so I, I I want to kind of recommend to your listeners to have two frames, two big boxes, if you will, or, or frames of reference in their world. Frames of reference, box of reference, whatever you want to call it, number one is what we see in the marketing press, marketing week, ad week, campaign, whatever, where they talk about the big brands with the big careers and the big budgets. If you don't work for any of those brands, what they do is totally irrelevant. Okay? Because they have the money, they have the cash. And I talked to uh, JP from Razer there um, in Sweden there on this particular topic. And he's saying, you know, the way to commit career suicide is walk into the boss right now and say, hey, there's all this research about brands. And if they if they spend more during a downturn, they'll do, they'll do much better. They'll hold market share. They'll get better rates of media. And they'll come out the other side with much better shape. And the financial controller says, get out because we can't even make payroll. So you have to choose. Um, where you're at, where your organization is at. And sadly, a lot of it is around making payroll at the moment. Um, so that's why box number one says brands with lots of money who don't have a supply and don't have a demand problem, who have money in the bank. And then there's box number two, which is essentially most businesses, 99% of all businesses in the UK, 99% of all businesses in America, 99% of all businesses in Europe pass are known, are called SMEs. They do not have unlimited money. They do not have unlimited funding. And so you you, you you eat what you kill, if you will. If you have the money, you can do it. If you don't have the money or guaranteed return on investment, you're not going to do it. And you shouldn't do it. And it's actually irresponsible. So my advice to brands is, which, which, which box are you in? If you're Nike, you can follow the orthodoxy. But if you're not Nike, you basically read, uh, take take um, take any views from Nike as up there with even Beano, Fantasy, um, uh, Chickens Entrails, whatever you want to call it. Interesting to do, something to pass the time, but yeah. a total irrelevancy to your business. La La Land, yeah, really, yeah. No, it's a very well done. That was a really interesting insight like and i think listeners will get a lot of um use out of just what you said there and just from the content side alone um 
like I think content could change and be more localized in the future. And the reason why I mentioned the word localized is that you see a lot of communities coming together during this time, whether it's small or big. And I just see that content could be brought into a more communal type strategy, um, going for different regions and just not going for more, I suppose as mass market the world, but I can just see it become a bit more regional type content within countries on its own. Would you think it'll become a bit more localized? Um, it's the, the, I think, sorry, we know through what's happening in the USA, most countries are becoming more, if you will, nationalistic. And we saw what happened with Italy there a few weeks ago, where they were basically ignored by the European community. Uh, the, the veer, the, 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 the pivot, if you will, to most countries now will be, I've got to look after myself because I was left high and dry by outsourcing things. You will no longer have everything outsourced to China ever again. That's going to stop for a generation. Okay. And um, as a subset of that is if you're reliant on yourself, um, why would you be giving the hard-earned cash that you've got to something that's far, far away? Okay. This is going to become the zeitgeist. And then a subset of that then is, Therefore, I can speak locally, act locally, and create local content that will speak to my local market because the context will be there. So as we know, the globalist version of the view versus the local one, well, what's happening right now is going to force the local way of thinking. Yeah, you think so? 100%, because you've got a choice now. You're living in, let's say, East Midlands, where I worked and lived for a long time, or you're living in Galway. You're this last three or four months has taught you the importance of locality and location because you've spent so much time there. You spent a lot of time thinking all these other places are far away, A and B, never created any value for you. Mm. Well said. Well said. Colin, I think we're going to leave it at that for today. Thanks a lot for coming on. I know you've busy man doing articles and just trying to keep on top of things and you've been on lots of other podcasts so i can't thank you enough for uh for coming on the show really enjoyed having you on listen and, thank uh, you for your time it was great fun thanks for asking all these great questions